Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kelly, for reading that so well. Um, so we're back in 1 Samuel. We were there last year, weren't we? Um, and it sort of kicks off a new era for God's people. Um, it introduces the kingship. So this whole of this uh, book, we're thinking about leadership. And Samuel is raised up uh, to bring about God's anointed king, the Christ, the Messiah. So our ears are pinned back. And we're going to keep this passage open, um, page 282. And let's bow our heads in prayer. Our loving Father, we thank you that your word is powerful, that you speak to us through it, and you want us to delight in it and be obedient to it. Lord, please teach our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I just want to introduce you to um, some people. Firstly, there's Hugh. Um, I've got a picture of Hugh on the screen. Oh, no, there's Samuel. I forget that. Hugh, next one. Now, Hugh um, is 24 years old and was brought up as a strong Christian. And he himself, um, and he's, he's also a very good racing driver, and he loves it. He's been a semi-professional racing for a while, and he knows he has a shot at being a professional racing driver. The problem is it takes up all his time. And every race is on a Sunday. Therefore, he simply does not manage to get to church. In fact, he's not managing to get to anything going on at church at the moment, the weekend or during the week. And he knows it's not ideal. But it's a sacrifice he feels he has no choice but to make. And then there's Sally. Sally has been a Christian for about 10 years since university, but she hasn't found a husband. She really wants one. Well, she hasn't actually been in a proper relationship, seemingly because of her Christian faith. But an old boyfriend from her school days has arrived at her office. They get on really well, and they've begun to date. Sally's really happy. Her parents are happy. Her friends are happy for her. However, she's got this difficulty in the back of her mind. He's not a Christian. Also, he's begun to talk about sharing a bed together and then sharing a house. Everyone else seems to be doing it, except it's just an accepted way of life these days. Even some churches, and uh, they're teaching that it's okay to do that. And so Sally's very tempted to bring her singleness to an end. And what about Jeff? Jeff has been a Christian for 15 years. He's in a bit of a sticky situation. He's got a really good job, nice house, big mortgage, young family. Everything's really quite settled. However, his boss at work is beginning to ask Jeff to cut corners. He has begun to question it, but that's only made the boss angry and more insistent. That not only the corners cut, but figures in the accounts are changed or sort of hidden to give potential investors the wrong view of how healthy the company is. Just look the other way, Jeff. It hasn't been said outright, but Jeff is likely to lose his job if he makes a fuss. It's unlikely anyone will find out about the cutting of the corners, and so Jeff is tempted to stay quiet, to do what his boss asks, and keep his job. And besides, you know, it's not his fault he's been forced to do it. 
Well, in our Bible reading this morning, the lesson, or the main lesson, seems to be about obedience, uh, trusting God, while every instinct, the evidence, the experience at the time, is saying the opposite, to do the opposite. And we must be clear, mustn't we, here, because it's a huge mistake to think that obeying God is an easy thing to do. It's a mistake to think that, that obeying God is easy. Trusting God is neither straightforward or simple. And when we reach crossroads in our lives, a crossroads like Sally or Jeff or Hugh, a battle takes place in our hearts. We have the choice between serving God or serving ourselves. Or in Jeff's situation, fearing God or fearing man. It's fairly black and white, isn't it? But in the heat of the circumstance you find yourself in, where the exit door seems so attractive, so comfortable, so easy, and the alternative looks like a dark, difficult struggle with a, with a bad ending, well, it can feel almost impossible to trust God, to obey him. And today, King Saul is our teacher, and we saw last year in the first few chapters, Israel been struggling for some time. They've continually been disobedient to the Lord God, who had led, which had led to various difficulties and sorrows, including being overrun by the nations, in particular the Philistines. And finally, the people, rather than turn to God's choice of leader, Samuel, his prophet, his mouthpiece, the people cry out to God for a king. One like the other nations, they say. One who will lead them, go before them, and fight their battles. And we see that in chapter 8, verse 20. And the Lord said to Samuel, No, don't be dis dis heart disheartened. It's me they're rejecting, not you. They didn't want God as king. And that's an issue that just simply won't go away. Century after century, month after month in our lives as well. It's the heart of our sin, not wanting God to rule over it. So the Lord warns them, unlike God's kingship, who wants to give, 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 a worldly king will simply take, take, take. A king will come and keep taking. But the people insist, and so God gives them what they ask for. It's not always a great thing to read, God giving what we ask for. And he gave them a handsome, tall warrior called Saul. Sorry, the slide's gone a bit odd. So that's Samuel on the right and Saul on the left. God's prophet Samuel. He's prepared for kingship. Through his ups and downs, he then becomes Israel's king, and that officially happens in chapter 11. And along with the whole book of 1 Samuel, as I said, it's about godly leadership, our quest for a leadership, of the, a wonderful leadership in our lives. And Saul starts off quite well. In chapter 11, he fights Israel's battles. He wins a wonderful, a tremendous victory over the Ammonites. But in those earlier chapters, Saul, as I said, was especially commissioned in chapter 10, verse 5, to fight the Philistines with God's help. They were the dreaded enemy of Israel. But so far, he's failed to even take them on. 
Back in chapter 10, despite there being a Philistine outpost near Saul's home, he does nothing about it. The prophet talks about it, but Saul ignores it. There they remain, the Philistines in full view. And in chapter 11, Saul musters 330,000 troops, people. But by chapter 13, he's yet to take on any Philistines whatsoever. And that is becoming a presenting issue. And by chapter 13, our chapter, verse 2, if you see it there, Saul's 330,000 troops have been reduced to how many? 3,000. He sent most of them home. And Jonathan, who we've yet to meet, which is his son, he's given charge of 1,000 of them. And straight away, verse 3, look at this, it is Jonathan, not Saul, who attacks the Philistines at Geba, Geba, which may be another name for Gibeah, Saul's hometown. So the original garrison that Saul should have defeated previously, Jonathan has done it, he's kicked the hornet's nest. And verse 3, the Philistines hear about it, and they're incensed. And Saul blows the trumpet. It turns out to be his own trumpet, really, because he takes the credit for the attack. He rallies Israel, and verse 4, we learn that Israel is because they become a stench to the Philistines. A bit like, um, remember with the sinking of the Russian flagship recently, the Moscow? The Ukrainian troops were worried about that because it would increase the anger of the Russians. They'd become a stench. Well, here in chapter five, verse 5, that's happening. And the clouds are gathering. The Philistines assemble their troops. And it's a massive army. It's a monumental crisis for Israel. Verse 5, the Philistines had ten times the chariots of Saul's army, twice the horsemen, and the number of soldiers was too vast to count. So what is Saul going to do? Well, he summons the people to Gilgal, which is in the opposite direction. But it's actually the place where Saul was officially inaugurated as king at the end of chapter 11. So it's a special place. And also it was where Samuel had told Saul to go when this happened. So back in chapter 10, we read that once action begins with the Philistines, he's to go to Gilgal and wait and wait for uh, the prophet Samuel. But apart from all of that, Saul seems to be remarkably inactive. Um, We're not even told that he was the one who summoned Israel. And verse 6, when the men of Israel saw their situation was critical, many scarpered. It's a pitiful scene. Men hiding in caves, in bushes, amongst the rocks. Some even went abroad. Reminded when we ask people to help on rotors. uh, They just scatter. Actually, I've got a joke about it. I shouldn't really do this. Why is church like a helicopter? They shouldn't get too near the rotors because it's dangerous. Anyway, that's a, I've got that joke wrong. Anyway, Saul did not hide because he was the king. Saul's still there, but he didn't know what to do. It was an impossible situation. But Saul remembered Samuel's instructions. Chapter 10, verse 8. He was to wait seven days for Samuel to come and do the sacrifices, to, to ask the Lord what, what they should do next. So Saul did that. Brilliant. You know, with the people, they went to Gilead and they waited, to Gilgal, and they waited. 
and we begin to see a glimmer of hope. The king seems to be obeying God's prophet, God's word. And maybe this will turn out for Israel's deliverance. But as the clock ticks, Saul became more and more nervous. Each day, where was Samuel? Doesn't he know how desperate the situation is? More and more people were beginning to desert day by day, leaving. And meanwhile, the Philistines were advancing. And Saul kept sweating. And the seventh day arrived, as did the downfall of Saul. With no sign of Samuel, verse 9, Saul wheeled out the sacrifice and got started. He knew what the instructions were from God's word. But there's desperate times. This is an impossible situation. It was practically seven days anyway. But of course, verse 10, as soon as Saul had finished making the offering, Samuel turns up. And his opening words, what have you done? What have you done? It's just like God's words to Adam and Eve in the garden. Or God's word to Cain when he had killed his brother. What have you done? And Saul begins to explain himself from verse 11. I hear my own voice. The men were scattering. You hadn't come. The Philistine threat was enormous. I had to do it. And we're sympathetic, aren't we, with King Saul. We might even think that Samuel's reaction is a bit unfair. And that's because we think that because we've been there. We've been there. Maybe we are there at the moment, at the crossroads, having a Sally moment or a, or a Jeff moment. There is something going on in our lives, maybe something really big. And to obey God is just too difficult or it's really hard. We might even think it's impossible. And the enemy forces, they're too large. You feel totally outnumbered. The tide is strongly against you. And you pray, and you wait, and you pray, and you wait some more, and Samuel doesn't come. The answer is not forthcoming. So it's not your fault, is it? It's not your fault. It's God's fault. That's the equation in your head subconsciously. That's the excuse. Your sight of God has been eclipsed, and your eyes full on the large doorway marked easy life so it's king saul versus samuel in big ways and small ways we all face this dilemma of saul and too often like saul we find ourselves heading through the easy door of disobedience you fool says samuel you fool verse 13 you have not kept the commandments of the Lord your God gave you. We could have that at the top of our confession week by week, can't we? Because we don't. The crisis was huge. Saul needed help. He needed guidance from God. Samuel was the bearer of God's word. And Saul's task was to wait for God's word. Instead, he went ahead without God's word. And what happens in verse 14? Let me read it. But now your kingdom will not endure. So Saul will last for a bit, but his kingdom will not endure, his, his line. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of the people. 
because you've not kept the God's commands. So who does Saul fear? Man or God? As he goes on without Samuel's words, God's words. Samuel's behaving as though he were a fake, that the Lord wasn't there. And the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14, verse 1. You fool. You fool. And it's interesting that the pattern of this chapter is this. Uh, Saul, firstly, against the Philistines. And then in the middle where we are now, Saul versus Samuel. He's against Samuel. And then once again, at the end of the chapter, Saul versus the Philistines again. So it's if we're being asked this question, or this question's being asked, what is more daunting? The world, those Philistines, with their weapons and their armory, or Samuel with the word of God? Which is more daunting? Well, we know the answer, but we need reminding of it. So what do we do? What did Jesus say? My mind, when I thought that, immediately went to John 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Trust me. Am I dependable, says Jesus? Do I do what I say I will do? Am I the risen king, as you profess? Have I stood by you in the past? A Bible teacher called John Woodhouse, who I found so helpful preparing this today, uh, wrote this, or something like this. Here, we're starting to see the foolishness, the poverty of our disobedience. And the wisdom, the common sense of obedience, of doing what God says. When we remember just who God is and what he has promised us. So who is God? Who is God? Who is my God? Well, he's the risen one. He's the one who died for me, rose again, and is living today and walking with me. And that's what he's promised. So what has he promised us? That in the good times and in the really difficult times and those times of temptation, when things seem impossible... He says, I'm with you. I'm on your side. I've got this perfect future for you. And that's what Saul took his eyes off. The Lord God and his promises. He went through the door marked easy life. And he forgot. Look at Samuel's words in verse 13. You've acted foolishly. You've not kept the commandments. You've not acted in obedience. If you had, he would have established your kingdom. If you had chosen to obey him and not fallen the world, gone that way, through the easy door, he would have given you what he had promised, that royal line. It's like that past covenant with the people of Israel. Saul, their representative, was being disobedient and the promises seemingly lost. The heat had got too much and Saul chose disobedience. And now we have this desperate picture in verse 15 of Samuel, God's prophet, leaving the scene. 
The Philistine army is huge. Many Israelites were in hiding. The troops did not. Uh, the troops Saul did have were demoralized. But the worst event of all was God's guidance walking off the battlefield. And the picture we're given here is of helplessness. Verse 17 to 18, uh, the raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp, north, west, and east, but Israel could do nothing about it. And more than that, verse 19 onwards, they keep Israel disarmed. Verse 22, it only seems the king and his son have decent weapons. It's a helpless situation. As so often is the case in the scriptures, all seems lost, impossible, and yet, and yet, as always in the scriptures as well, we can read on 1 Samuel with hope. Because Yahweh never leaves his people, the remnant, the true people of God. Even when things hit rock bottom, our God is the God of salvation. Like us, King Saul couldn't help himself. He acted foolishly, but wonderfully, he's a poor image of a coming king, an anointed one, a savior who came to rescue us, who is perfectly obedient. Let me read some words from Hebrews chapter 5. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Father, save me from this hour. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learnt obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So you and I, we can't obey God perfectly. We so often are disobedient. We, who are so often fools, saying in our hearts there is no God. Well, Jesus came for us to be our perfect leader, to be obedient in our place, and to pay for all our disobedience, nailing them to the cross. So despite being the worst of sinners, we who come to him in faith can echo the confidence of the writer of Hebrews 4 to draw near to the throne of grace. Shall we put that verse up on the screen? Draw near to the throne of grace, pouring out our hearts to him, receiving his mercy to find grace to help us in our time of need, the time of temptation, when things seem impossible, he will be there to help us obey. So let us turn to our King Jesus in faith-filled prayer now. I'll keep that verse on the screen as I pray. Our loving Father, we thank you so much for your powerful word. We thank you for the warnings and the encouragements. We thank you that we're seeing a glimpse of the perfect king who will come and pay for all our sins. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is risen indeed and with us today. And Lord, he sympathizes with our weaknesses he sympathizes with our sins. And he gives us strength 
to overcome temptation, to not go through that easy door and to walk the narrow route of obedience to our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Fill us, Lord, we pray, with more of Jesus, with a bigger view of him, that we would follow you all our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.